Chapters 3 and 4 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 3. In the early years of the century, five little children and a couple of nurses began to make periodical visits to Palaham. It is needless to say that they were a rising generation of Pontifexes, toward whom the old couple, their grandparents, were as tenderly deferential as they would have been to the children of the Lord Lieutenant of the county. Their names were Eliza, Maria, John, Theobald, who, like myself, was born in 1802, and Alethea. Mr. Pontifex always put the prefix Master or Miss before the names of his grandchildren, except in the case of Alethea, who was his favorite. To have resisted his grandchildren would have been as impossible for him as to have resisted his wife. Even old Mrs. Pontifex yielded before her son's children, and gave them all manner of license which she would have never allowed even to my sisters and myself, who stood next in her regard. Two regulations only they must attend to. They must wipe their shoes well on coming into the house, and they must not overfeed Mr. Pontifex's organ with wind, nor take the pipes out. By us at the rectory, there was no time so much looked forward to as the annual visit of the little Pontifexes to Palaham. We came in for some of the prevailing license. We went to tea with Mrs. Pontifex to meet her grandchildren, and then our young friends were asked to the rectory to have tea with us, and we had what we considered great times. I fell desperately in love with Alethea. Indeed, we all fell in love with each other. Plurality and exchange whether of wives or husbands, being openly and unblushingly advocated in the very presence of our nurses. We were very merry, but it is so long ago that I have forgotten nearly everything, save that we were very merry. Almost the only thing that remains with me as a permanent impression was the fact that Theobald one day beat his nurse and teased her, and when she said she would go away, cried out, you shan't go away. I shall keep you on purpose to torment you. One winter's morning, however, in the year 1811, we heard the church bell tolling while we were dressing in the back nursery, and were told it was for old Mrs. Pontifex. Our manservant John told us, and added with grim levity, that they were ringing the bell to come and take her away. She had had a fit of paralysis which had carried her off quite suddenly. It was very shocking, the more so because our nurse assured us that if God chose, we might all have fits of paralysis ourselves that very day, and be taken straight off to the Day of Judgment. The Day of Judgment, indeed, according to the opinion of those who were most likely to know, would not under any circumstances be delayed more than a few years longer, and then the whole world would be burned, and we ourselves be consigned to an eternity of torture unless we mended our ways more than we at present seemed at all likely to do. All of this was so alarming that we fell to screaming and made such a hullabaloo that the nurse was obliged for her own peace to reassure us. Then we wept, but more composedly, 
as we remembered that there would be no more tea and cakes for us now at old Mrs. Pontifex's. On the day of the funeral, however, we had a great excitement. Old Mr. Pontifex sent round a penny loaf to every inhabitant of the village according to a custom still not uncommon at the beginning of the century. The loaf was called a dole. We had never heard of this custom before, besides, though we had often heard of penny loaves, we had never seen one before. Moreover, they were presents to us as inhabitants of the village, and we were treated as grown-up people, for our father and mother and the servants had each one loaf sent them, but only one. We had never yet suspected that we were inhabitants at all. Finally, the little loaves were new, and we were passionately fond of new bread, which we were seldom or never allowed to have, as it was supposed not to be good for us. Our affection, therefore, for our old friend had to stand against the combined attacks of archaeological interest, the right of citizenship and property, the pleasantness to the eye, and goodness for food of the little loaves themselves, and the sense of importance which was given us by our having been intimate with someone who had actually died. It seemed upon further inquiry that there was little reason to anticipate an early death for any one of ourselves, and this being so, we rather liked the idea of someone else's being put away into the churchyard. We passed, therefore, in a short time from extreme depression to a no less extreme exultation. A new heaven and a new earth had been revealed to us in our perception of the possibility of benefiting by the death of our friends, and I fear that for some time we took an interest in the health of everyone in the village whose position rendered a repetition of the dole in the least likely. Those were the days in which all great things seemed far off, and we were astonished to find that Napoleon Bonaparte was an actually living person. We had thought such a great man could only have lived a very long time ago, and here he was, after all, almost as it were, at our own doors. This lent color to the view that the day of judgment might indeed be nearer than we had thought, but Nurse said that was all right now, and she knew. In those days the snow lay longer and drifted deeper in the lanes than it does now, and the milk was sometimes broad and frozen in winter, and we were taken down into the back kitchen to see it. I suppose there are rectories up and down the country now where milk comes in frozen sometimes in winter, and the children go down to wonder at it but I never see frozen milk in London, so I suppose the winters are warmer than they used to be. About one year after his wife's death, Mr. Pontifex also was gathered to his father's. My father saw him the day before he died. The old man had a theory about sunsets, and it had two steps built up against a wall in the kitchen garden, on which he used to stand and watch the sun go down whenever it was clear. My father came on him in the afternoon, just as the sun was setting, and saw him with his arms resting on the top of the wall, looking towards the sun over a field through which there was a path on which my father was. My father heard him say, "'Good-bye, son, good-bye, son,' as the sun sank, and saw by his tone and manner that he was feeling very feeble. Before the next sunset he was gone." There was no dole. Some of his grandchildren were brought to the funeral, and we remonstrated with them, but did not take much by doing so. 
John Pontifex, who was a year older than I was, sneered at penny loaves and intimated that if I wanted one, it must be because my papa and mamma could not afford to buy me one, whereon I believe we did something like fighting, and I rather think John Pontifex got the worst of it, but it may have been the other way. I remember my sister's nurse, for I was just outgrowing nurses myself, reported the matter to higher quarters, and we were all of us put to some ignominy, but we had been thoroughly awakened from our dream, and it was long enough before we could hear the words Pennyloaf mentioned without our ears tingling with shame. If there had been a dozen doles afterwards, we should not have deigned to touch one of them. George Pontifex put up a monument to his parents, a plain slab in Palaham Church, inscribed with the following epitaph. Sacred to the memory of John Pontifex, who was born August 16, 1727, and died February 8, 1812, in his 85th year, and of Ruth Pontifex, his wife, who was born October 13, 1727, and died January 10, 1811, in her 84th year. They were unostentatious but exemplary in the discharge of their religious, moral, and social duties. This monument was placed by their only son. Chapter 4 In a year or two more came Waterloo and the European peace. Then Mr. George Pontifex went abroad more than once. I remember seeing at Battersby in after years the diary which he kept on the first of these occasions. It is a characteristic document. I felt as I read it that the author, before starting, had made up his mind to admire only what he thought it would be credible in him to admire, to look at nature and art only through the spectacles that had been handed down to him by generation after generation of prigs and impostors. The first glimpse of Mont Blanc threw Mr. Pontifex into a conventional ecstasy. My feelings cannot express. I gasped, yet hardly dared to breathe, as I viewed for the first time the monarch of the mountains. I seemed to fancy the genius seated on his stupendous throne, far above his aspiring brethren, and in his solitary might defying the universe. I was so overcome by my feelings that I was almost bereft of my faculties, and would not for worlds have spoken after my first exclamation till I found some relief in a gush of tears. With pain I tore myself from contemplating for the first time at a distance dimly seen, though I felt as if I had sent my soul and eyes after it, this sublime spectacle. After a nearer view of the Alps from above Geneva, he walked nine out of the twelve miles of the descent. My mind and heart were too full to sit still, and I found some relief by exhausting my feelings through exercise. In the course of time he reached Chamonix, and went on a Sunday to the Montanvert to see Mer de Glacé. There he wrote the following verses for the visitor's book, which he considered, so he says, suitable to the day and scene. Lord, while these wonders of thy hand I see, my soul in holy reverence bends to thee. These awful solitudes, this dread repose, 
yon pyramid sublime of spotless snows. These spiry pinnacles, those smiling plains, this sea where one eternal winter reigns, these are thy works, and while on them I gaze, I hear a silent tongue that speaks thy praise. Some poets always begin to get groggy about the knees after running for seven or eight lines. Mr. Pontifex's last couplet gave him a lot of trouble, and nearly every word has been erased and rewritten once at least. In the visitor's book at the Mountain Vert, however, he must have been obliged to commit himself definitely to one reading or another. Taking the verses all around, I should say that Mr. Pontifex was right in considering them suitable to the day. I don't like being too hard even on the Mer de Glace, so will give no opinion as to whether they are suitable to the scene also. Mr. Pontifex went on to the great St. Bernard, and there he wrote some more verses, this time, I am afraid, in Latin. He also took good care to be properly impressed by the hospice and its situation. The whole of this most extraordinary journey seemed like a dream, its conclusion especially in gentlemanly society, with every comfort and accommodation amidst the rudest rocks and in the region of perpetual snow. The thought that I was sleeping in a convent that occupied the bed of no less a person than Napoleon, that I was in the highest inhabited spot in the old world, and in a place celebrated in every part of it, kept me awake some time. As a contrast to this, I may quote here an extract from a letter written to me last year by his grandson Ernest, of whom the reader will hear more presently. The passage runs, I went up to the great St. Bernard and saw the dogs. In due course Mr. Pontifex found his way into Italy, where the pictures and other works of art, those at least which were fashionable at the time, threw him into genteel paroxysms of admiration. Of the Uffizi Gallery at Florence, he writes, I have spent three hours this morning in the gallery, and I have made up my mind that if of all the treasures I have seen in Italy I were to choose one room, it would be the tribune of this gallery. It contains the Venus de Medici, the Explorator, the Pancratist, the Dancing Faun, and a fine Apollo. These more than outweigh the Laocoon and the Belvedere Apollo at Rome. It contains besides the St. John of Raphael and many other chefs-d'oeuvre of the great masters of the world. It is interesting to compare Mr. Pontifex's effusions with the rhapsodies of critics in our own times. Not long ago a much-esteemed writer informed the world that he felt disposed to cry out with delight before a figure by Michelangelo. I wonder whether he would feel disposed to cry out before a real Michelangelo, if the critics had decided that it was not genuine, or before a reputed Michelangelo, which was really by someone else. But I suppose that a prig with more money than brains was much the same sixty or seventy years ago, as he is now. Look at Mendelssohn again, about this same tribune on which Mr. Pontifex felt so safe in staking his reputation as a man of taste and culture. He feels no less safe, and writes, I then went to the tribune. This room is so delightfully small, you can traverse it in fifteen paces, yet it contains a world of art. 
I again sought out my favorite armchair, which stands under the statue of the slave wetting his knife, Larotino, and taking possession of it I enjoyed myself for a couple of hours, for here at one glance I had the Madonna del Cardellino, Pope Julius the Second, a female portrait by Raphael, and above it a lovely holy family by Perugino, and so close to me that I could have touched it with my hands, the Venus de' Medici, beyond that of Titian, the space between is occupied by other pictures of Raphael's, a portrait by Titian, a Dominicino, etc., etc., all of these, within the circumference of a small semicircle, no larger than one of your own rooms. This is a spot where a man feels his own insignificance, and may well learn to be humble. The Tribune is a slippery place for people like Mendelssohn to study humility in. They generally take two steps away from it, for one they take towards it. I wonder how many chalks Mendelssohn gave himself for having sat two hours on that chair. I wonder how often he looked at his watch to see if his two hours were up. I wonder how often he told himself that he was quite as big a gun, if the truth were known, as any of the men whose works he saw before him. How often he wondered whether any of the visitors were recognizing him, and admiring him, for sitting such a long time in the same chair, and how often he was vexed at seeing them pass him by and take no notice of him. But perhaps, if the truth were known, his two hours was not quite two hours. Returning to Mr. Pontifex, whether he liked what he believed to be the masterpieces of Greek and Italian art or no, he brought back some copies by Italian artists, which I have no doubt he satisfied himself would bear the strictest examination with the originals. Two of these copies fell to Theobald's share on the division of his father's furniture, and I have often seen them at Battersby on my visits to Theobald and his wife. The one was a Madonna by Sassoferrato, with a blue hood over her head which threw it half into shadow. The other was a Magdalene by Carlo Dolci, with a very fine head of hair and a marble vase in her hands. When I was a young man I used to think these pictures were beautiful, but with each successive visit to Battersby I got to dislike them more and more, and to see George Pontifex written all over both of them. In the end I ventured after a tentative fashion to blow on them a little, but Theobald and his wife were up in arms at once. They did not like their father and father-in-law, but there could be no question about his power and general ability, nor about his having been a man of consummate taste in both literature and art. Indeed, the diary he kept during his foreign tour was enough to prove this. With one more short extract I will leave this diary and proceed with my story. During his stay in Florence, Mr. Pontifex wrote, I have just seen the Grand Duke and his family pass by in two carriages and six, but little more notice is taken of them than if I, who am utterly unknown here, were to pass by. I don't think that he half believed in his being utterly unknown in Florence, or anywhere else. End of chapter 4 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman